So I've been arguing that successful self-control, insofar as we're able to glean from the, uh, the data, and I will make one or two remarks about what, might, the, the, data, what, might, what the data might be missing. Um, successful self-control involves strategies, and I've been concentrating in particular, although concentrating maybe overstating it, I've been mentioning uh, strategies of environmental manipulation. And uh, I've been arguing that the rationalist view, which I think is tied up to what uh, I think we might call the myth of willpower, the idea that uh, willpower is the virtuous way to exercise self-control, that willpower is A, a powerful influence, and B, uh, the, the way, the route we should use to control ourselves. Um, those things actually set ourselves up for the cycle of resolution, resolving to avoid temptation, to stick to one's diet, to achieve one's goals, to write that paper, whatever it might be, reconsideration and regret. Um, today I want to put a bit of flesh on the claim uh, that strategies are the way to go. I want to actually make the idea of strategies a bit more concrete and also to expand the range of the strategies available uh, in addition, as we'll see, to strategies of environmental manipulation which are aimed at avoiding temptation or changing the costs of temptation there are strategies that we, that we can use to focus on ourselves and they may look a little more rationalist friendly I'm going to suggest they're not all that rationalist friendly after all um, and I want to uh, continue to make the case that the rationalist strategy is not one with that much to recommend it. As we'll see, willpower is an essential part of the picture, but it's a small part of the picture. It may in fact be necessary, but uh, it's a, a means we employ to get ourselves going, and it's the strategies that then take over and do the bulk of the work. Okay, I want again to remain close to the psychological data. I think that philosophers too often use their intuitions about what uh, might be the case uh, without checking to see if those intuitions are accurate. Now I'm going to start with a very famous experiment, or really a series of experiments, which uh, uh, helps explain the title of today's lecture of marshmallows and moderation. So probably many of you, maybe all of you, have heard of the marshmallow test. Here's the basic structure. Uh, starting in the late 1960s and continuing into the 70s and then a series of uh, um, studies and experiments since then, as recently as 2012, they went like this. Young children around the age of four, a little younger and a little older as well, um, age turns out to be a significant predictor of self-control. Young children are brought into the lab and they are given the following task. They are told you can have one marshmallow right now or as soon as you like. Or if you wait uh, typically until the experimenter comes back into the room and a delay period of 15 minutes, you can have two. So this is a delay of gratification task. Presumably you prefer two marshmallows to one. Uh, it's a larger, later reward. It's a self-control task. Uh, achieving the larger, later reward requires foregoing the smaller, sooner reward, one marshmallow, which you can have immediately. Um, with noting, uh, not every kid 
it's commandment of Mashnalas. Um, it's called the Mashnalas test, but in fact, uh, we're given a choice prior to the, uh, beginning the task of either Mashnalas or a pretzel stick or uh, an Oreo cookie. Uh, but in each case, the um, setup's the same. One now or as soon as you like. So um, at any time during the delay period, you can have one. But if you, you wait until the end, you can have two. So as I say, this is a series of experiments. Uh, and there are many different variations. And a lot of really interesting data yielded by this, ex, uh, this uh, series of experiments, some of which I'll talk about later. What I want to focus on now is something which uh, shouldn't be a surprise given what I've said about the um, usefulness or necessity of self-control as a um, capacity to pursue goods, to pursue indeed a conception of the good uh, by because pursuing valuable goods involves a continuous series of smaller sooner larger later trade-offs it turns out that successive delay at age four predicts success across a large number of domains in later life so uh, Self-control is something like a Rawlsian primary good. Rawls has this idea of goods such that no matter what else you want, you want goods like that because they're likely to be useful for a range of different goods. At very worst, they won't do any harm. Um, Self-control is like that. It's useful for a range of, uh, of conceptions of the good. In fact, I think for all of them. And having it at age four turns out to predict all kinds of stuff. So in a 10-year follow-up, it predicted uh, better concentration in you know, what we're now adolescents, uh, both as rated by teachers and by rated by themselves, and greater ability to cope with frustration. Four-year follow-ups, four years uh, subsequently, uh, found that some variants of the task predicted uh, college entrance scores, SAT test scores. That's an objective measure. And again, that's not surprising from my perspective. If self-control is stable, uh, then we should see it predicting this kind of thing because being well the SAT test requires um, both in the preparation time and during the test itself, it requires uh, avoiding this, uh, the temptations that, uh, that distractions represent. Um, a 40-year follow-up, these kids are about my age, 40-year follow-up found that uh, self-control was continued to be stable. That kids at age four uh, were turning into self-controlled kids at age four, relatively self-controlled. Self-control develops across the lifespan. People get um, uh, flatter discount curves. Relatively better self-control. Four-year-olds are relatively better self-controlled. 44-year-olds. So, it looks like self-control is a personality trait. A stable trait of the personality. And indeed, psychologists talk about trait self-control as a dimension of personality. And they measure it, usually with a scale. Uh, again, it can be self-rating or other rating for tread self-control. And they find, I seem to be repeating myself here, they find that it predicts success across a range of domains. Even psychological well-being and health. Again, not surprising from my perspective. Okay. So what I've been calling willpower is the capacity, capacity to effortfully uh, resist temptation. It's an onboard capacity, uh, the muscle 
that the muscle model of self-control uh, measures. It's uh, what the folk identify with willpower when they say somebody is strong-willed. It's that capacity which seems to be called upon by the marshmallow test. Here is a marshmallow. If you want to have two, you have to resist this temptation. Yes, this tempting short-term good. Um, you better have good strong muscles, mental muscles, to be able to achieve what you desire. So here's, it seems, is something we can say. People who have strong wills, as mental muscle, have a stable personality trait which predicts success across a range of domains. All of this is very rationalist friendly because it's willpower the rationalist needs in order to be able to say, we needn't worry, we can take our strategy of answering questions about how we ought to act by always looking to the will, by looking to the evidence. Um, if we have strong wills, then we can look to the world confident that we'll be able to stick to our guns. I think all of that is too quick. The claim that willpower is what uh, predicts success across life domains and is a stable personality trait measured by trait self-control, all of that I think is false. So. The rationalist friendly picture turns out not, I think, to be true. So here's some evidence. Um, Imhoff and colleagues depleted individuals um, using a strict task. So I, I wasn't very friendly to the depletion hypothesis last time. Nevertheless, I'm claiming the data that they cite, the sequential effect, is a genuine effect people really do get worse at self-control across time. So evidence from depletion experiments, from evidence about self-control. They used a modified Stroop task. If you remember Stroop, that's a colour naming task. You have to name the colour um, of words, uh, which is a, a self-regulation task, when the words don't match the colour they're written in. It requires um, effort to resist the impulse to read the word when it's, say, blue written in red ink. You have to overcome the impulse to read the word, which is an overlearned response, in order to name the colour. So they depleted individuals and then they had them take uh, part in what was ostensibly a food uh, rating task. So social psychologists, they're in the business of lying to people. Um, so they told them what we wanted you to do is to sample these M&Ms and tell us about their sensory qualities. In fact, the dependent variable was how many M&Ms they actually ate. And here's the finding. Individuals higher in trait self-control consume significantly more M&Ms after depletion than individuals who are not high in trait self-control. In fact, individuals one standard deviation below the mean in trait self-control showed virtually no effect of depletion. They ate about as many M&Ms as controls who weren't depleted at all. So it looks like high trait self-control predicts vulnerability to depletion. And conversely, low trait self-control uh, predicts immunity, relative immunity. And in the non-depletion condition, high trait self-control individuals didn't eat less. They didn't eat more, but they didn't eat less. Uh, high trait self-control doesn't even give you an advantage when you're not depleted, but it gives you a disadvantage when you are. Well, so much the worse for 
trait self-control? Well, there is evidence that trait self-control measures something, and what it measures is significant. It really does predict success across different life domains. So uh, we shouldn't dispense with it um, too quickly. It is a capacity to pursue valuable goods, and I've claimed that we pursue valuable goods by continuously negotiating the smaller sooner, larger later trade-off. So trade self-control is, by my lights, a measure of self-control, even if it isn't a measure of willpower. I think it's a measure of a capacity to self-manage. It's a measure of success at organising your environment so that you encounter fewer temptations or that their costs are higher when you do encounter them. Or you deploy other strategies, which uh, I'll add to as we go. These are ways of avoiding the discount curves crossing. You can avoid your discount curves crossing if you're a hyperbolic discounter, either by preventing the uh, temptation being imminently available, because that's what triggers the spike. It makes the curve uh, cross over the, the line with the other one. Or by changing the relative costs. That keeps it, increases the chance that when it spikes, it doesn't spike as high relative to the other good. So it achieves the same end as well, pal, but by a different route. Here's some evidence that trait self-control is a measure of um, success at self-management. So this is a 2013 uh, subject, a study. They found that, that this was a self-report study. They just asked people to report memories of uh, the day. And they found that subjects higher in trait self-control reported a lower frequency of engaging in effortful control. And they also reported lower temptation strength. Now, there are a couple of possible explanations. There are many possible explanations of this finding. Here's one which would be unfriendly to me. Maybe high trait self-control individuals have personality differences such that they don't find many things tempting. Maybe they just don't think that donuts or Angry Birds or Facebook or whatever it is is all that tempting. Or maybe they just have pallid phenomenology. They find them tempting but they're just not that powerful for them because, I don't know, they don't imagine them all that uh, vividly. Uh, 2012 study produced evidence that, there, that addresses this kind of uh, question. They used an experience sampling methodology, uh, which is a, a methodology which avoids a lot of the problems with self-report. Problem with self-report is people are subject to all kinds of biases. They're subject to memory biases, subject to saliency biases. If you ask me to report what I did this morning, I may have forgotten things, I may, I may be motivated to forget them, um, they may not strike me as particularly important, and so forth. We know these biases are powerful effects. So self-report always has to be um, taken with some scepticism. Experience sampling helps to avoid these problems by randomly signaling to people at times they can't predict to look at what's going on in their life just then. So the memory and saliency biases won't affect what they report. They normally wear a beeper or um, often it can be an app on an iPhone or, a, or a, an Android phone. At, at, at random intervals beeps them and says, okay, report what's going on now. What they were asked is to report whether at the time of the signal they were experiencing a desire, its strength, 
any conflict they felt with regard to it. Because I don't want to suggest that desires are bad things. Of course, we are. It's, we, we want to feel desires, and we want to give in to desires very often. Um, we don't feel conflicted about all of our desires by any means. Report whether they try to resist the desire, and report whether they successfully resisted the desire. And in this study, they found that higher trait self-control didn't correlate with lower desire strength, nor did it correlate with success in resisting desire. Rather, it correlated with fewer temptations. And in particular, it correlated with fewer temptations from a list that um, previous piloting had found to be especially problematic kinds of desires, most of people didn't want to feel and found it hardest to resist. So taken together, this suggests that people who are higher in trait self-control aren't better at resisting desires, instead they're better at avoiding the occasion of desire when it's problematic. And I found a paper just this week, uh, just came out, uh, which supports this, so Ed Baumeister and Tice. Uh, gave their subjects uh, a difficult task to perform and they gave them a choice of environments in which to perform the, the, um, the task. One environment was boring, distraction-free and you know, unrewarding and the other was exciting and full of distractions. High trade self-control individuals were significantly more likely to choose to perform the task in the non-distracting environment. So they seem to be using the strategy of avoiding the occasion of problematic desire. Recall the muscle model from last time if you were here. So the muscle model suggests that self-control, willpower in particular, is something that develops across time. Exercise your mental muscle and you get better at it. High trait self-control individuals don't exercise their willpower. They can be predicted to have relatively less of it, and that's just what we see. They are vulnerable to depletion, and that's what we should expect, given that their willpower is relatively atrophied. Their willpower is relatively atrophied, but they are doing well at pursuing the goods for which we need self-control. Inside the lab, they don't get a chance to control their environment very much. Ent Baumeister and Tice set up in which they're given a choice of places to, <coughs> to uh, perform the task is a very unusual setup. Outside the lab, they have a choice about how they, they have a degree of control over their environment. And maybe that's part of the reason why high SES correlates with better self-control. Because high SES correlates with more control over your environment. It can't be a complete uh, explanation, but it could be um, part of the reason. So, an aside, um, do high trait self-control individuals have the virtue of being self-controlled? Now Aristotle has this kind of hierarchy. The person who successfully resists temptation is better than, more virtuous than, the person who gives in to temptation. But best of all is the person uh, for whom problematic desires just aren't tempting. Confucius says much the same thing in the Analects. Well, so much for ancient wisdom. Or rather, if that's, that may well be an ideal, and for all we know, there may well be exemplars who actually possess the virtue and do it for the right kinds of reasons. I take it that we wouldn't call the person who just had pallid phenomenology, and that's the reason why they didn't find her. Uh, all the problematic desires tempting, we wouldn't say that person has the virtue. 
but perhaps there are people out there who have the virtue. Uh, this kind of data I've been citing is relatively blind to individual differences. It's looking at group means, it does parcel out uh, differences uh, between individuals insofar as they correlate with various things like it parcels out the difference between higher and lower self-control, but it's not designed to be able to pick up genuine outliers. What we can say is even if there are people with the virtue, they are not the bulk of people who are doing well in pursuing the goods they value. Rather, they're off to the side of the Aristotelian hierarchy. They're just not, they're using a strategy which just doesn't fit. They're not giving in to their desires, but they're not um, effortfully resisting or failing to find them problematic in the first place. Instead, they're utilizing a kind of strategy that the hierarchy doesn't envisage, a strategy of management. Their, their success depends on their skills and not their virtue. All right, let me return to the Michel studies. I don't know I mentioned that. Michel was the lead uh, researcher and it's his lab that did the marshmallow uh, studies, Walter Michel. As I say, in the late uh, 60s, as far as I know, he's still working. Certainly his name was on the 2012 paper. Um, I want to return to these studies to uncover a bit more about these skills. So, as I say, they look like experiments about willpower. One marshmallow, effortfully resisted, and you'll get two. One Oreo cookie one pretzel stick, and so forth. And indeed, the initial hypothesis seems to have been a hypothesis about willpower. At least, I think that's a plausible interpretation of what Michel actually says in that initial paper. Psychology's changed a lot. It's, um, if you read the, the papers from the early 60s, they're much more honest than I expect psychology experiments to be. They, they say, this was our hypothesis and it turned out to be completely false. Um, rather than uh, retroactively adjusting a, a hypothesis to uh, fit the data. The initial hypothesis was that reward visibility would predict delay. So the, the idea was, here are two marshmallows or two cookies. Here's the goal. Here's what you're, you're, um, you're working towards. That's going to be motivating. And because you can see it, you're going to be able to resist longer. So they had three conditions. Uh, one reward available, both rewards available, no rewards available, uh, visible, that is to say. The um, finding was just the contrary of that initial hypothesis. The more rewards were visible, the shorter the amount of time the kids waited. That's not surprising insofar as it was in fact largely tapping into willpower, which is a duplicable, in any case, subject to some kind of sequential effect such that when you call upon it, you have less of it available. At later times. However, unsurprisingly, or given my hypothesis that willpower isn't what explains uh, success of pursuit of valuable goods, however, that doesn't entail that the experiments were only able to tap into willpower. In fact, Delay was not a function of condition only, and you know there was individual differences um, across conditions. There were successful delays in all conditions except the both rewards available condition. Successful delays in the reward visible condition, the one reward visible condition, 
who had to use willpower to some extent at least, successful delayers rely, relied on strategies of self-distraction. They couldn't manage their environment. Being four is to is be such that you can't manage your environment. Adults manage it for you. Um, but they can deploy strategies and they did. They sang songs. They looked away. They tried to fall asleep, in one case successfully. They played games. They turned around and so forth. This spontaneously and later work found that uh, children by the age of five are actually able to say that's what they were doing and why. In follow-up work, once Michel had and his group had identified this is what kids were doing, and it was this that was explaining um, delay most successfully. In follow-up work, work, they cued these strategies. So they cued children either to think about the, the rewards, or they, they cued them with distracting fun thoughts. And they found that that was a very, very significant predictor of capacity to delay. Um, children cued to think about the rewards resisted very short times, regardless of reward visibility. Children cued to think um, distracting thoughts resisted successfully, somewhat independently of reward visibility. So we are seeing success at delay of gratification drawing on individual differences, but they're not differences in willpower. They're drawing on skills and self-distraction. They're also drawing on skills at construal. There's independent literature, which I haven't mentioned, um, on so-called construal level, which uh, explains a lot of the variance in self-control. People who construe tempting goods in low-level terms, if you construe that chocolate as that sweet, gooey stuff, um, they delay the shortest amount of time, they exercise the least amount of self-control. And people who construe it in high-level terms, in particularly, uh, particular, construe it as a self-control problem, rather than tending to a sensory uh, features, they are much better at self-control and construal can be prompted and uh, primed and uh, that, that um, increases or decreases people's capacity uh, to delay gratification. So to the strategies of environmental uh, management, which I've been emphasizing, we can add strategies of construal and skills at attention direction. Attending to goods starts the process of drawing on willpower, and that, because willpower just isn't that powerful in all that perhaps some best, which our, our instruments are not picking up because they're not sensitive enough to sensitive um, enough to, to uh, pick up outliers. In all but those few cases, if they exist, willpower just isn't that powerful. Again, by the way, this is quite an anti-Aristotelian conclusion, I think, or at least it supports an anti-Aristotelian conclusion. If you think about uh, education in an Aristotelian framework, what Aristotelians say is to teach the virtues, or to teach success in domains, you present people, children, with exemplars, with models, and you do that to inculcate dispositions. Now, no doubt that um, some of what's going on here is in fact the triggering or the manifesting of dispositions to construe and to self-distract. And no doubt dispositions can be taught in this kind of Aristotelian way. 
But what I'm suggesting is there seems to be lots and lots of room for explicit teaching. It turns out, from Michel's data strongly suggests, that the skills of control and self-distraction can be explicitly taught uh, to young children. Certainly the skills of environment management uh, to avoid uh, temptation or to change the relative costs, certainly they can be taught. Now, again, it's worth emphasising, this doesn't show that willpower is irrelevant. So Michel reports that self-distraction was almost never spontaneously um, deployed in the two rewards visible condition. And the reason, presumably, is that the two rewards are very attention-grabbing, and you need lots of willpower to start self-distracting, to start construing, uh, when your attention is grabbed by this kind of salient stimulus. Children were able to spontaneously deploy these strategies in the one reward-visible condition, though. And to do that, to get going, they needed to exert some willpower. Willpower gets you going, but you'll be foolish to rely on it. All right, let's return to the rationalists. So they say, we have a strong and conceived a feasible reason to ask ourselves how we ought to act at any time by respecting our rational agency, treating ourselves as free beings, which means never looking to our resolutions, never treating these things as inert facts, but looking to our reasons as they obtain in the world at a time. And I've suggested that that sets us up for the cycle of resolution, reconsideration, regret, that very sad and very familiar cycle. So against this, the rationalists can appeal to the genuine existence, the genuine power of willpower. Willpower enables individuals, and it, no doubt it does all the time, to reconsider without setting themselves up for subsequent regret. But recall the muscle model. Willpower is a real thing, but it can't be that powerful. Think about the depletion experiment again. High-trade self-control individuals are pants after depletion which is just what we'd expect, given the muscle model. They've got weak willpower and um, they find themselves, therefore, acting incontinently. On the other hand, people who are as a whole standard deviation below the mean in tra uh, trade self-control call upon their willpower all the time. It's all they've got. And they have lots and lots of willpower. These are the bodybuilders of the willpower world. And we're seeing that they're pretty much invulnerable over the short term to ego depletion. So, willpower is a great thing, except that these people who are low at high, at uh, trade self-control don't do well at pursuing the goods they value. They might do great in depletion experiments, but they don't do well uh, particularly well at pursuing academic success or avoiding entanglements with the law um, and concentrating at sticking to their diet. Willpower is a necessary condition of uh, self-control but it just doesn't seem all that powerful. Alright, the strategies I've been sketching, strategies of environmental management to avoid temptation, change the relative costs of temptation, and also skills at um, 
distraction and control. All of this, I think, is rationalist unfriendly. It's regard, with regard to the management strategies, that's, it's very obvious why this is rationalist unfriendly. But it's, it may be less obvious with regard to the skills. Think about self-distraction though. That is uh, the skill of doing just what the rationalist tells you you shouldn't do. Rationalist says, look to the world in order to um, find out how what to do. The self-distractor says, look to the world, la, 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 la. So the last thing I want to do, even construal is something of an indirect approach. It avoids asking about the full range of reasons that obtain at a particular time. It avoids construing that marshmallow is a sweet, tempting good, and instead construes it as something it's not like a fluffy white cloud. That's not looking to the reasons. So all of that looks pretty rationalist, um, unfriendly. All right, let me get more concrete in the last uh, section. Try to put some flesh on these bones. Actually, saying what these strategies come down to, or at least giving some examples of them, so, they involve three different things, I think. This is my attempt at a taxonomy. Avoiding temptation, avoiding the occasion of problematic desire, changing the relative costs of temptation when you can't avoid it or uh, when it's a better, you know, it's less uh, disruptive of your life to, uh, to ensure you do encounter it, but under circumstances, of your choosing. And finally, a strategy of deploying skills and of construing. So A is what I call the Ulysses strategy, completely uh, uh, unnovelly. Um, last time, this Ulysses ties himself to the mast. He thereby prevents himself, or physically prevents himself from um, not so much encountering the temptation as acting on it. There are many obvious examples when you start to think about it, when you start to look for examples of strategies like that in the world. In fact, people deploy these strategies um, without necessarily thinking of them as examples of the Ulysses strategies. So, for example, there are term deposits that prevent you from withdrawing your savings. Uh, or another banal example, uh, if you find you're very tempted by the smell of donuts coming out of the bakery, you can just choose a different route home. Maybe it's some extra cost to yourself. Maybe it's a slightly longer route. You don't walk in front of the bakery and thereby you avoid the occasion of problematic desire. Um, here's a higher tech example. There's an app called Self Control, which Susan Greenfield is very, very concerned by. She thinks it's the thin end of the wedge that it exists. Self-control is an app, you can get it for your Mac or PC, which locks you out of the web or of certain sites. You can either whitelist or blacklist. You can choose sites you have access to or choose sites you don't have access to for a certain amount of time. And once you've set it going, for that amount of time, you're locked out. Um, I don't know how to turn it off. Uh, it's not easily turned off at any rate. So for the, for the duration of the time you've set, you're locked out of the web and the, uh, you've avoided those particular um, distractions. Some strategies which might be conceptualized as Ulysses strategies might be better thought of as strategies that change the cost. I don't think there's a bright line between preventing yourself and uh, altering the relative costs. Imagine Ulysses had tied himself to the mask with one arm. Would that be an example of preventing himself from acting on the temptation or would it be one of ensuring that he only acted on the temptation at the cost of gnawing his arm off? Um, you can think of it in either way. 
Um, so there are savings account for for example that um, don't prevent you removing your money but make you pay a penalty they change the relative cost so you might for example might be a high uh, interest account um, there really were such things once um, and you forego the interest if you take your money out so that changes the relative the relative costs if Ferrari comes available and your discount curves don't cross because the temptation the Ferrari represents uh, is now counterbalanced by the income you would forego. Um, Joao Fabiano told me about a different uh, um, app called Beeminder. Uh, Beeminder is a word processor app. Um, what this one does is uh, you set a weekly goal for the amount of words you want to write. And it monitors the number of words you write. And if you fall below a threshold, it starts to charge your credit card. <laughs> and the further you fall, the higher the rate it charges the credit card. And you can't change the settings um, immediately. There's a one-week lockout period before you can change the settings. So that changes the relative costs. If you're going to say, well, you know, I think I'm going to play on the web more, um, you can still do that, but you're going to pay literally um, a cost. Um, a colleague has the strategy of putting his Ethernet cable in his pigeonhole. That's a way of changing the relative cost too. Take his email if he wants, but he now has to get up and walk down the corridor and get the cable, and that's just enough, probably, to you know make it a little too onerous. Uh, gamification, uh, which is you know trendy these days, may also be a well way of changing the relevant costs. So if you're gamifying your run, that means uh, sharing with other people who use an app, maybe on Facebook or something. Uh, and you know, competing or at least getting kind of social kudos from the fact that you run 10 kilometers every day, now your reputation is at stake. So the relative costs of staying in bed a cold morning are now higher because you may think people are going to think less of you. Or Maybe you just value being higher on the leaderboard. Again, it changes um, the relative costs. Strategies of um, deploying attention and of construal are less familiar, but I think they're actually... I mean, Mitchell was finding that children were spontaneously deploying them. So no doubt we will find that we are spontaneously deploying them. I think it's a familiar fact that you don't ruminate about a temptation. I think we know that. Um, there's a lot of talk uh, about the white bear effect. Um, we, the white bear effect is this. If you ask people, don't think of a white bear, they'll think about a white bear more than if you, you know, just mention white bears to them. You can't effortfully avoid a topic, but you can effortfully self-distract. Um, one finding from the procrastination literature, a much repeated finding and perhaps not a surprising finding, is the problem with procrastination is getting started. Once you get going, people are pretty good at um, sticking to a task, even one that they found it onerous to contemplate. It's that initial hump that's difficult. And one reason why that might be true is that tasks are often you know, attention-grabbing. You don't have much attention to deploy to anything else once you get going at that difficult task. So the distractions just aren't salient anymore. Um, so getting going is the trick. There are things we can do to get going. Here's something from the psychological literature, uh, which isn't intuitive. Uh, we can use implementation intentions. 
And this turns out to be quite powerful. So if people just intend to do something, I'm going to work on that paper tomorrow, that doesn't strongly predict them actually doing it. Obviously, there's lots of individual difference, but it doesn't strongly predict them actually doing it. Um, but implementation intentions make it far more likely that they will act as they intend. An implementation intention is, the, is a conditional intention to do it conditional on some cue. When it's five o'clock, I will start working on that paper. It's rather late to start. That's your implementation intention. People who give themselves cues as a part of a content of an, intent, of an implementation intention are much more likely actually to act on the intention than those who don't. So that's employing a, a skill slightly counterintuitive. All of this is indirect. All of these strategies are indirect strategies. These are not strategies of looking to our reasons. Even the strategy of using implementation intentions doesn't ask the person to think at a particular time, is this the best use of my time? No. It's a strategy of, I resolve to do this given the cue. None of this is particularly rationalist friendly. But insofar as the data is uncovering what actually works, and I, I mentioned again the caveat, there may be Aristotelian um, agents who exemplify the verdict, oh, sorry, the, um, the virtue who are self-controlled and use willpower to do it, uh, our, the, the experiments are not designed to uncover them. Insofar as the experimental evidence is showing what actually predicts its self-control, it's these indirect strategies doing that work. Thank you.